Hello, and welcome to the Heathen's Journey podcast. I'm your host, Abby Pluff, and I'm so glad you're here. This is the show where I explore inclusive heathenry as a queer woman. We will be talking about traditional witchcraft, runes, folklore, and so much more. Join us, won't you, as we journey to the ends of the Nine Realms and back. I am so excited that the, about the interview that is up on the podcast today. I'll be speaking with Minta Carlson, owner and proprietor of Needfire Wellness and Apothecary. If you've been listening for a while, you might recognize the name Needfire Wellness. It's an online shop and academy based out of Portland, Maine. Minta uses their elvish taste to curate a beautiful store of folk magic supplies for both the newbie and the experienced witch. I met Minta at a local heathen gathering here in Minneapolis last fall, and let's just say we became fast friends. It has been a true delight to see their business grow and evolve. In this interview, we talk about methods of folk magic, how to get started, as well as dealing with our complex understandings of our own ancestors as settler colonialists. We talk about how the privilege of traveling to our ancestral homelands has opened our eyes to what we're missing in America and how to try to make that more accessible to people who still live here but are not able to travel. I'm so eager for you to listen. But first, I have a very special announcement. Yesterday, I launched the Radical Runes course. This is a 12-week intensive runes course focused on looking back at historic uses of the runes, as well as looking forward and developing our own understandings for the 21st century. This course is unlike any other runes course in that it is grounded in queer leftist theory and practice. A radical, queer, holistic approach to learning the runes. We will study the runes from the perspective of contemporary practitioners using the runes for divination and magic. We will also learn some limited historic accounts of the runes and learn their uses as an alphabet. I teach the runes as a gateway into Norse heathenry. They contain the potential for people, especially of Norse descent, to decolonize witchcraft and place it in a culturally specific context. This course is open to anyone who wishes to study the runes. We will be talking a lot about using the runes to connect with ancestors, but you don't need to be Norse to connect with this portion of the class. Quite frankly, this is the course I wish I'd had when I was first starting to learn the runes. Head on over to northernlightswitch.com shop to learn more and register today. The course starts on September 15th, 2020 and runs until December 1st. All live sessions will be recorded and uploaded to a student folder on Google Drive. I hope to see you in class. Without further ado, let's get on to our interview. Well, hello, Minta. It is so wonderful to have you on the podcast. Why don't you give just like a brief introduction of yourself for our listeners? Absolutely. Um, So my name is Minta Carlson. I'm a um, primarily Swedish American. I'm a troll dome or um, Scandinavian Nordic magic folk magician and the owner of Needfire uh, Wellness Apothecary and Academy, sort of this uh, 
behemoth of a company that I created two years ago that focuses on um, creating resources for practitioners and for people who are new to uh, witchcraft and uh, with an emphasis on Nordic magic, which is my personal focus. Yeah. And that's why I'm like so excited to have you on this podcast because I know that a lot of um, a lot of resources for beginning witches are not focused on a specific uh, path or, you know, like a specific heritage of witchcraft per se. Of course, there's, you know, resources for young Wiccans and others, but a lot of stuff that I see kind of coming out today is more so um, geared toward a solitary practitioner or just like a general magic user. Uh, so I'm very thankful that Needfire Wellness and Apothecary exists. Thank you. Um, yeah, it started as uh, its own sort of just platform for me to explore my own identity as a Nordic magician. Um, but as time went on, I it just started to grow and it's taken on its own life. Um, I definitely have avoided categorizing myself as, or categorizing the business rather, as purely Nordic because I think that folk magic tends to lend itself to a lot of different people and a lot of different um, backgrounds. But I try to create a, um, a nice balance of, uh, of thoughtful, safe Nordic resources um, in addition to general witchcraft tools and general uh, spell and witchcraft items that um, are intentionally non-appropriative. Yeah, definitely. Um, so let's kind of wheel it back a little bit. Um, and how did you get involved with uh, trolldom and um, folk magic? When I first heard of Trolldom, I was very dismissive of it. I was like, ah, this is it. Because I was talking about something else at the time. And someone was like, oh, have you heard of this? And um, I, I'm on the autism spectrum. And sometimes when people mention things that I'm not talking about in that moment, my immediate reaction will be to dismiss them. Like, I was like, ah, no. Um, which I'm <laughs> Yeah, totally like, we have more important shit right now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like, haven't you heard what I'm saying? Um, which I'm trying to get better at uh, and try to be more aware of. But uh, Johannes, I know, thinks it's hilarious uh, because I it I have um, really so enjoyed both a business working relationship and also um, getting to know his whole family. Uh, I got <laughs> stranded in Sweden when COVID-19 started and I lived on his family farm for a month with uh you know, both of his little kids and his wife and his in-laws. And so it was, it was a fun time. Um, and I definitely uh, feel like this last spring has brought me full circle to sort of like the questions I was asking four years ago. So you mentioned Troll Dome as kind of your current practice. And you also referred to yourself as a folk magician. And so I have a little bit of training in ceremonial magic. So whenever I hear magician, I think of like, you know, complex, like 
circles and transmutations and like hermetic shit. And um, so I, I know that that's not necessarily your practice just from like having known you a bit. So like, what does folk magician mean to you? And how do you kind of define Troll Dome or like, how do you talk about it? Because I think that uh, Troll Dome especially is, you know, it's kind of like known as like a thing and a lot of like folk magic circles, but not in like a greater pagan context. Yeah, for sure. Um, Well, first of all, I do have some um, experience with uh, ceremonial magic. I was exposed to it when I first started with magic and it just wasn't my thing. Um, my, my, actually my life partner, uh, is it, or he doesn't really practice much these days, but he's a very, very talented ceremonial magician. (laughs) So we get into heated discussions constantly about, um, different ways of approaching magic. Uh, I like to think of it as like, ceremonial magic like if you're interested in ceremonial magic it's like you're a very extra person yes and also very academic yeah it is really academic and um there are aspects of it that I definitely uh use but that's the beauty of folk magic folk magic has existed for such a long time um and it's really uh, the people's magic. It, just like the Buddhism I was raised with is sort of the people's Buddhism uh, in Japan. Uh, this is the people's magic. It's like the sort of the point of folk magic uh, is that you're able to utilize the materials that are available to you. That it's, you know, you certainly if the ritual calls for drawing some crazy circles and chanting an Enochian, like that's going to happen. But um, I'm not very good at chanting an Enochian. Uh, That being said, uh, folk magic, it always, um, I feel like folk magic really approaches magic from a place where um the i'm trying to think of the best way to say it uh the people who are doing it uh have to actively focus on why rituals work because you can exponentially grow or shrink a ritual if you understand the mechanics of how rituals work and if your subconscious mind will allow you to override the need for these very extra rituals um that's actually at the heart of so I teach a lot of classes on witchcraft and that is at the heart of my teachings on witchcraft it's like you need to know your intention and then you can build around that but if you don't know what you're trying to do and you don't know like how they work, um, it's, it's not going to work as well. And I think that, you know, I, I just love the way that you describe that of like, you can exponentially grow or shrink a ritual to suit your needs. I also think of folk magic as just very syncretic. Like <laughs> people are, you know, coming into contact with, you know, people from all over the place and learning and stuff. And I think that there was a lot more as folk magical practices were being developed, there was a lot more movement between places than people think. So 
there's kind of a, a that happening, like coming together. I think that's absolutely true. And I think that witchcraft often is folk magic, like at its core. Um, really, the bigger distinction is the difference between a witch and a magician. Now, I mean, the first thing I would say is that the names and titles are fairly like superfluous like it's it's okay to like mix and match and decide you don't resonate with one or you do resonate with another but time and time again when I've worked with other magicians and talked to them the takeaway is that uh, magicians ultimate focus is towards a greater level of transcendence that yeah a folk magician will do a lot more of what uh, probably ceremonial magicians call petty magic. Um, and that I've definitely heard before. Uh, but uh, ultimately, the goal is the same. We are, as a folk magician, and what differentiates us from other um, practitioners within our own circles, uh, really is that idea of um, choosing work because I work as a magician, like I, I actively like take on spell work, do spell work for people, but choosing work that isn't against that greater goal. Um, when I do work with clients, I always keep that goal in mind and I try not to give advice that falls into a particularly um, single-minded aspect. And then when I'm in my own practice, I don't just cast spells to like grow things or whatever. Like, you know, I, I try not to cast a lot of spells around myself because my primary focus is a um, transcendence, uh, a breaking away and reintegration of ego and a deeper knowledge of self. I love that. Yeah. And that actually makes a lot of sense in terms of using the word folk magician for yourself versus using the term witch. Like I personally prefer the term witch for my own working because um, the figure of the witch is so often outside of society and rebellious. And I, I do a lot of political magic right. and I do a lot of like kind of rebellious queer like magic in that way. And, you know, that's not necessarily about my own transcendence right? Like it's, it's about right. like more of a collective thing. And I always feel like, you know, the witch is somebody who like maybe lives on the edge of the, in the archetype, right? We have the person who lives on the edge of the uh, community and like maybe knows the way through the dark woods and people go to them when they need something. And that feels very close yeah. to me. So yeah, I, I just love that. Um, so what is Trolldom? So you're a folk magician well, within the Trolldom tradition. Yeah. So I have been studying Trolldom for a little while now. Um, Trolldom is the traditional word for magic uh, in most Scandinavian languages. Um, so you'll see actually see the word Trolldom used a lot uh, just to mean magic in general. Um, but the tradition uh, is actually this really well-documented um, series of uh, folk traditional magics and healing ceremonies. Um, there's a lot of initiatory practices around certain aspects of Trolldom. Um, there are a lot of uh, superstitions and beliefs about how you pass on those traditions. Um, Sweden is, 
is a part of obviously a part of Scandinavia and the Nordic region and was one of the last uh, parts of the world uh, in Europe and in sort of the Western world to be uh, colonized by uh, Christianity. And so uh, a lot of people attribute that to the length in which magic was sort of mainstream and it continued to be mainstream for quite a long time. Um, In fact, uh, my teacher, Johannes, uh, was able to meet people, you know, who were born, you know, not even uh, 80 years ago, who still knew the practices and it's still very much a part of the culture. Um, This idea that there's an animistic spirit to the culture, that there are creatures that live in the woods, that there are spells that one can do. Um, A lot of it has sort of faded just into uh, folk habits. And, you know, one that I hear a lot is uh, when Swedes go camping, uh, you're supposed to like yell certain phrases if you, you know, go pee in the woods and throw your pee like you're you're supposed to warn the spirits and that's a really great example of uh, a tradition that specifically was born from trolldom um trolldom really existed in the countryside especially because it was so hard to get to doctors um so these traditional practitioners, a lot of them were women. Um, my great aunt Christina actually remembers her grandmother being one of these practitioners. Uh, and uh, the people in the town knew that she knew all of these folk remedies. They had been passed down to her. And so if it wasn't an emergency situation, uh, they would involve the troll cunning is often the word. Uh, that they use, although there's so many words uh, that they would use. Um, And they would involve the troll cunning to um, come and learn about or teach them about um, how to get better or just do the ritual itself uh, if there wasn't a doctor that could come or sometimes in lieu of a doctor because they didn't trust the doctor. (laughs) Yeah, Um, that's beautiful. So... This is probably like a super baby question, but I'm going to ask it because I'm curious. Troll dome, troll. Does this have to, do you also do a lot of work with um, trolls or like the spirits, like elvish spirits? Yeah. Um, yeah, there's a lot of, it's, it's very complex. Uh, so, and also very simple. So the first question that one needs to ask when you bring that up is what even is a troll which really varies depending on the person and it has to do with sort of like a spiritual essence um definitely i have done some work with elves although i highly recommend that people are very cautious i I say that but it's almost like uh when when people talk about like going out into the wild and like handling an animal or something and it's like someone who's like really good at that talking about it you always have to add that caveat of don't do this yourself it can be incredibly dangerous um because it can elves are among the spirits in my opinion uh and the opinion of every serious practitioner i know they're among some of the few spirits who can directly uh actively kill you um and uh yeah so i i will say i have sought out the elves before um and it was 
an incredible experience that I try not to focus on too much because of the danger involved in doing it. Um, trolls, I actually don't know if I've met a true troll. I've met people who have troll aspects to them. Um, but I, like, I know, I don't know how to really best describe a troll. I know what a troll is. If I saw a troll, I could say that's a troll. Um, <laughs> but I, it's really hard to describe, you know, it's, it's this sort of idea, um, yeah, but yeah, oh, yes, the the aspect that relates to the magic does have a relationship with um, that idea of troll. But troll has a lot of meanings in Scandinavian culture, too. Yeah, which is part of why I asked, is because it's like, there are so many different layers and meanings to what a troll is. I mean, I know that a lot of it is... Um, you know, like if you, you, you just mentioned that there are people who have troll aspects to them. Um, and we're not talking like internet trolls. We're talking like, yeah, <laughs> you know, you're not talking about just like that troll online. You're talking about like meeting somebody actually who exhibits this sort of like magical um, quality. Uh, so how are the different ways that like, maybe it, because it's so hard to describe, maybe describing like, what are some different ways that trolls have showed up for yeah. you? I would say I really haven't worked a ton with trolls, but when I think of a person who sort of like makes me think of a troll, I think of someone who uh, like collects lots of shiny, like pretty things that like don't always match each other aesthetically, but just sort of like hoards them in this like kind of amazing, beautiful way. Um, there's definitely like a an earthiness and a deep connection to nature. When I think of a troll, I also think of um, someone who's really good with plants. Uh, so like, you know, I I know that there's all these new like cores, like you hear like goblin core and raven core and all these things that are popping up on Facebook. And I feel like troll core is like its own thing. Um, <laughs> like we've got yeah. cottage core and then we've got troll cottage core. Yeah, I feel like cottage core can be. I mean, troll cottage core. I would say cottage core is troll core. Like <laughs> to to like a, a, a if we're gonna take it to a meme level, um, I, which I think is totally acceptable when trying to explain magic on a very elementary level. Um, I think that yeah, cottage core and uh, goblin core are definitely troll core. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I think that does make sense. Yeah. And I, I think of it also like I I think that in the general zeitgeist, um, especially because we're in an English speaking, you know, like a primarily English speaking country, um, like tales of the Fae, right? In, you know, like Irish or Scottish heritage, like that really feels kind of close to trolda to, to trolls, but not quite you know like there's a little bit of a like a harder edge to trolls yeah and I think it's important like when you had mentioned too that I'm talking about people who remind me of trolls and things like that I think it's important to recognize that in Swedish lore and in Scandinavian Nordic lore that um these beings 
had a place in the lineage culture for these peoples. Uh, so the first, um, the first kings of Sweden were uh, Frere, and there were the he was the Yingling family, and there was the Shielding family who were related to Odin. And then there's a lot of attributions in these early king stories of marrying elves or Yuttons marrying people or like so there is a context for uh describing someone as being elven or describing someone as being Yutton which are the ice giant people um so I think keeping that in mind that although we're not necessarily suggesting um that people are descended from trolls not not suggesting either um that there is definitely a precedence for talking about people in that context within trolldom. Totally. Absolutely. I, I shouldn't say trolldom because I don't know that in these, these texts that we have still that it would, you'd find a direct attribution, um, but in the myth culture, in the Norse myth culture. Yeah. And what texts, if somebody were interested in exploring Trolldom, um, what texts would you recommend? And I'll also um, put this in the show notes. Great. Um, well, unfortunately, most of the texts about Trolldom are written in the native languages, in Swedish, Danish, Norwegian. Um, there are some great archives of the Swedish Trolldom texts at the ASI in Minneapolis. Um, there are also, uh, some really great, like just tons of resources online if you can read Swedish, but, uh, there's only two books that come to mind that are indeed translations and, uh, something that is accessible to purely an English speaker. Um, and I should also say even someone who is attempting to just, uh, translate, uh, their own texts, will miss a lot because there's a lot of um, language context and old language that's used in these old uh, troll formulas that really could um, create a lot of confusion. Uh, the book that I most recommend would be actually Johannes Gordbeck's book, uh, Trolldom. Um, and it's just simply that you can search it pretty easily. Uh, the other one, I'll have to get you the name and the title because I always blank on it, um, but it's this huge tome and it was someone's doctorate, basically, a thesis. Uh, and he basically just, he was an English speaker and I will say there are some spells in there that I have since heard aren't really super accurately translated. Um, okay. Yeah, uh, I will also say that the Nordic Animism calendar guy, um, Bruno, I think his name's Bruno, uh, we're friends on Facebook, I should know his full name. Uh, um, he, he's with the Nordic Animism calendar, and he creates a lot of really great YouTube content that often includes Trolldom. Um, he is a student of history in Denmark, I believe. Oh, wonderful. Um, yeah, so he has included things like uh, Urskong, which is like uh, the year's walk where you, as it started in Smolin, Sweden, but it's, or we don't know that it started there. The first at attestation of it that we can find from, if I remember correctly, is in Smolin, Sweden. 
Um, but it's this idea of going on a very particular divinatory walk on certain times of the year. Um, I actually, I wrote an article about it for the Alchemist Kitchen last uh, Christmas. Because it does coincide with both Christmas and Midsummer. Interesting. Lovely. Yeah. I actually, Johannes's book is like staring at me from the shelf. Nice. I was like, I was wondering if they were going to talk about that one. That's great. Um, wonderful. So in non-COVID times, uh, when we are not living through a pandemic, um, I know that you and Needfire had been talking about doing these uh, Troll Dome uh, Swedish tours. So do you want to talk about that a little bit? Yeah. So um, we, so Johannes and I, uh, before I was even a student of his, he knew that I was doing work with Need Fire. And I actually um, just, I had a project I was working on last summer and I ended up going to Sweden and I spent some time talking to him and he proposed to me the idea, let's uh, bring people to Sweden and show them these historic sites and teach them about Trolldom. Um, and he really wanted an American counterpart to help with that. Uh, so we've put together what we call Troll Passages. It's um, under, our website is SwedishMagicTours.com. Um, but basically the entire concept is that, that we bring people to Sweden, uh, specifically to Västergötland, which is a, a Western sort of Western uh, Swedish, like near the north of Gothenburg, um, near the ocean. Uh, and there's tons of runestone, well, less runestones, tons of burial mounds, um, lots of historic things there. Uh, and a few little museums that we would bring people to. Um, so we have this whole trip planned out. We were supposed to go this August, uh, but we've canceled that tour. We are hoping, I mean, it, it's hard to say what's going to happen. We, cases apparently are going down in Sweden, hopefully. Um, we are hoping that we can uh, bring people in October at the earliest, but we're just watching how things progress. It's everything happens so quickly. It's hard to say one way or another. Um, we do definitely plan on bringing people uh, uh, next April, as long as things go well in terms of COVID and certainly for next midsummer because midsummer is a huge holiday for Trolldom. Um, I personally feel really strongly about these tours because uh, being in Sweden gave me such a better perspective of what it means to live on a place that feels like your homeland. Um, now, I think that these tours are accessible for anyone, regardless of their heritage. There's so much beauty, there's so much magic, uh, but just on a personal level, I was able to come home and have a lot more respect for uh, indigenous cultures and how they must feel. Um, having had a relationship with a piece of land that felt like a mother to me. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I think that's, that's an interesting point because I'm actually tracing back my own serious study of the runes um, to, I mean, I'd kind of used them magically and I was sort of like in a, in a very, I don't want to say half-hearted because it wasn't half-hearted, but like, I, I did worship, you know, Odin in my practice as a witch, 
Um, but it wasn't until I went to Norway for a summer that I felt like, oh, like this is what home feels like. I don't know. And I think that, you know, as people who work magic, right, like we have a little bit more of like an energy sensitivity or perhaps like, a, um, you know, I, I don't know if, you know, going into a trip to Norway, I would have, you know, felt the same way or had the same like intense uh, reaction to it uh, if I didn't practice magic. But that's what basically kind of like catalyzed my interest in and deep study of the runes myself. So yeah, I really resonate with that. And I do think too that like, you know, people of any heritage can be interested in Trolldome or interested in these folk practices. And this is a great opportunity to learn more. Yeah, I think I think like any tradition, it's important to recognize that it's based on an existing culture and it's important to really do one's research and try to understand the context of that culture. Um, I think Kari Toring's work is so valuable because for Americans, it act, she does an amazing job relating those cultural pieces uh, in a way that allows us to better understand. Um, she talks about uh, the garden gates in some of her um, pieces and the idea of Ingard and Utgard and Frith and Grith and um, house and the inner layer of the farm and the outer layer of the farm. Um, that to me, I didn't realize how accurate that was until I was stranded on a farm in Sweden and really got to see like it still exists in that way and at night when it's dark out there's still like these feelings of like if you go beyond this certain layer and and that relates to the elves too if you go beyond this certain layer you aren't in the protection of the farm anymore you need to be aware of um more things you should have more uh sensitivity about how you act and move in those spaces. Um, the other thing that was really important for me is that I think we get kind of a warped view of uh, Nordic and Norse culture in particular being separated from it as Americans. Um, I will say in a positive way, I think Americans are part of the revitalization of trolldom. I think that that fascination is going to help to uh, renew and sustain it as a practice and a tradition. Um, but I do get the sense that we have a very different perspective of how the Vikings operated, how these gods were perceived, and even the personalities that are associated with them. And that actually leads perfectly into my next question, which was about like, as somebody who practices in America and who has a very direct tie to how, you know, things are done in Sweden um, and Scandinavia, what are the cultural differences that you're seeing with Norse paganism here versus, you know, over there? And like, what, what, what can we kind of draw from that? What can we learn from that? I mean, a lot of my own work, honestly, like, yeah. is in undoing some of the tangles that white supremacy has uh, wrought in the Norse pagan, like American Norse heathen community. And that's not all of it though. So like, let's, let's talk about it. Yeah. Um, I do think that the, 
the issue of the appropriation of symbols by white supremacists is its own issue because it plagues both us and uh, the Nordic regions. Um, it's, it can be equally as destructive there as it is here. And I think we're all dealing with that issue. Um, but I will say in terms of differences between uh, general non-supremacist non uh, heathen and Norse pagan practices, um, the thing that stands out the most to me, uh, there's a few different things. The one that always jumps up for me is the idea that we so easily oust people from Nordic heathen, Nordic pagan groups. I noticed this less so in um, enclaves like Minneapolis. I noticed that there, there's a lot more healthy healing that goes on when someone misbehaves within the community. And I'm not talking about like an outsider coming in and trying to disrupt everything, but someone really having some strong beliefs and uh, things come up that are hard for the community to swallow or that are in uh, like sort of uh, what's the right word that uh, aren't in the same mindset as the greater community. Um, in traditional Nordic con concept, you wouldn't, you wouldn't cast someone out unless they had caused some really serious violence or crime. Um, in fact, you would spend a lot more time trying to see what the problem was and uh, work with them and sit with them and as a community, uh, give them support around growth. Um, and I notice in, and I think this is just generally a very American thing to do to sort of uh, get rid of people, to just say, I don't agree with you, so you're not allowed here ever again. Um, which doesn't lead to someone being a better person. Totally. It sounds like there's more of a restorative justice model in yeah. Scandinavia versus here. There's more of like, a, okay, I've been thinking a lot about abolition lately, but like sort of like that prison industrial complex like seeps in. It's like, oh, I'm going to put you away. Right. You are exactly. going away now um, rather than like that true restorative justice. And I'm not saying that like, Sweden is an abolitionist country or anything. <laughs> I'm just saying that like, I've been thinking about that a lot in terms of our own practices. Yeah, and that, that makes sense to me. Um, the other piece that really pops out to me is just the way we relate to the gods. Um, I mean, in Scandinavia and um, the Nordic countries, you learn about the Norse gods, you learn about the runes in school, like, and you have these ideas about them. Um, Certainly, I have on occasion seen these very intense interpretations of Odin and Thor and uh, Freya, and I don't want to suggest that they're not intense. They have, like, I, first of all, I don't really believe that um, most people in traditional contexts prayed to gods in the way that sometimes I see American heathens do. And everyone is um, allowed their practice. If someone, if that is how someone feels the most connected to a god, certainly I'm not here to stop them. Um, but if they're trying to do it in a traditional context, those regions of the world are much more ancestral. Um, 
you would work with your family spirits first, typically. Uh, you might work with the aspects of self that reflect a certain God. Uh, but it's actually quite dangerous to just uh, give yourself over to a God. I mean, that, in my opinion, is something that should be done after years of investigation, uh, initiation, working within a tradition. And then maybe at a certain point, you found yourself uh, that you're in this position where you want to serve a god but i notice especially new heathens and new norse pagans will like look for their patron god and that to me is very very not nordic um it's yeah it's interesting there's within the even within like the eddas right which tell a lot of the stories that we know of the gods and goddesses there's a certain level of distrust of them you know it's like they're very powerful beings and I actually really love and resonate with the idea that you know the gods are kind of like higher spirits almost you know like they're not you're not relating to a god in the same way that you relate to like Yahweh or Allah or something you know like it's it's just not the same as with a monotheistic tradition um, and the gods in Norse, uh, in the mythology are very fallible as well. And they have their own motivations. And so, yeah, I, I totally agree with you. I think that like, it does make sense to, all right, I'm going to dip my toe in. I'm going to learn a lot of things. I'm going to see what comes to me. I'm going to, you know, like before seeking an initial, um, godlike experience, I actually personally, um, in my personal notice, I, was I, I was basically like approached by Odin and I was like, nah, I'm not doing that. I'm an atheist. <laughs> and kind of like eventually I was like, okay, I guess like this is really a serious path for me. So I have to explore this, but you know, that's just a personal story. But yeah. So what are some other differences that you kind of noticed culturally? I would say that, uh, I mean, there's a lot of cultural differences. Just uh, the, the culture in Sweden is just very different. Like, yeah, it's a, uh, I noticed that people have better boundaries um, just in general. Like I've noticed Swedes are more comfortable uh, saying things that they notice, like saying like, oh, I don't really like that or, oh, I, that's not something I'm interested in. And they they assume that you're not going to get offended because they're not really making a comment on you. They might say, oh, I don't agree with you or, oh, I don't like what you're, or not even like what you're doing, but I just don't like that. And that's really not a commentary on you. And I think that um, there is... A, a lot of codependency in America. I think that um, it's a big issue for us. I also am really of the opinion. So uh, certainly there, Swedish American, as a Swedish American, I carry a lot of privilege, um, especially based on what I look like and who I am. Uh, but I also try not to forget that when my ancestors came to this country, they were intentionally stripped of their last name and given a new last name. Now, some people will attribute that to um, 
being them deciding, but it was really social pressure. People were trying to be white at that time. That was a movement. Um, I have since actually changed my name, my last name back, um, not legally yet, but at least uh, for, you know, um, uh, public pur purposes. And uh, I really think that especially Nordic Americans have been um, broken from that ancestral root piece that that was intentional, that it was aggressive um, as a culture in America. Actually, a lot of um, a lot of whiteness was given to people in stages, basically. So at the turn of the 1900s, uh, Finns, Swedes and Norwegians didn't fall into that category of white yet. They fall into the immigrant category and it wasn't until later that they were co-opted into whiteness, um, which is still, a, they still agreed. I mean, I, I, you know, I'm not trying to excuse any behavior on the behalf of white people. <laughs> right, I, yeah, and I actually, so in the episode, just a couple episodes ago, I did an, a, a talk because um, it was, during the time of the George Floyd uprising uh, here in Minneapolis. And so I was like, I can't just like release another podcast about runes or whatever. <laughs> like I have to talk about white supremacy within like Nordic paganism. Um, and yeah, I, I kind of talked about the like different layers of whiteness and how like whiteness was, the concept of whiteness was formed, you know, mm -hmm. around that time. And um yeah, it's it's not even just like there were the the good white people and the um the Irish. <laughs> there was like a whole range in between cuz you know, I mean yeah. Yeah. A lot of a lot of interesting like how is whiteness assigned and what does whiteness and buying into whiteness actually strip from us. Yeah, I I know that about uh almost all of my ancestors there's only one line that came much earlier but almost all of my ancestors came over around the 1900s and at that time they were still um not considered sort of that mainstream um part of the culture. Uh but all of that to say not specifically to like harbor on that uh, point of how they were co-opted, but rather to say that part of the co-option required that they intentionally uh, separate themselves from their family of origin and their country of origin. Um, that's something that the U.S. is very good at doing. It's very good at telling people that they are not of the culture that they originally were from. And uh, I know that there are studies on this. Uh, I have my own opinions about it. Um, but ultimately, I am of the opinion that it causes a lot of emotional upheaval. And I think we see that in the heathen community, which is predominantly Nordic American, um, because there were very few people in those groups who didn't go through that at some point in their family. Um, I'm a part of a lucky family that was still connected to their Swedish relatives. Uh, I can't imagine what it would be like not to know the cultural context of my great-grandparents. Like, that's so closely removed. That seems like such a thing to have robbed from you. Um, yeah, it's a lot of, um, 
it's a lot of detective work almost. Yeah. And a lot of my clients, actually, a lot of, uh, I work with a lot of people who are intentionally trying to connect with their Nordic ancestors who want to start down that path and literally just have no context for it. They, they know that they don't want to appropriate from other cultures. They know that there is a cultural magical context within the Nordic regions in terms of Trolldom and things like that. Um, and they just want a place to start, but they have no information. Um, and it's, uh, I think, very heartbreaking. It is. And I think, like, having gone, right, having gone to Norway myself and you having obviously, like, been to Sweden many times, um, that does fit a lot of interesting pieces of the puzzle together. And yet I know that a lot of people don't have the resources right. to do that. Like I was only, I was only able to go because of a graduate studies program. <laughs> like that's why we're actually trying to need fire is trying to bring more Nordic educators from Scandinavia, from uh, different parts of the Nordic region, because we really would like to be able to expose people to more of this information. Um, that's also why I do so many zoom classes around that and why we offer so many classes within the academy um, I know that we're really trying to figure out how to bring, uh, Johannes hopefully next year. Um, although we haven't like set a date yet, it's definitely on our list of goals. Um, because I find that as much as I feel like I serve a purpose in being able to translate from American culture to Swedish culture and back, it really is something for someone who's grown up in those cultures to be able to talk about it as well. Uh, and I know in terms of at least the Gordbecks and some other uh, Swedish heathens that I've met, that they do really feel like family uh, to a lot of, um, I mean, to me and to other Nordic heathens that they know who are living in America, that they feel like there is that piece of, well, these these are the people who went away. They are just as sad that um, our grandparents left as we are that our grandparents left. They, I mean, that was a huge exodus of people in the early 1900s when um, basically what had happened was medical care had gotten a lot better. Um, people were literally starting to starve because they're, you know, usually the farm your children would die. And so you had enough people to work the farm, but not too many. Now there were families of 10 or more and they didn't have anywhere to go. And they had to go to America. Um, I know my personal story, uh, my great grandmother, Vivian Hornell, uh, she went over, two of her other siblings went over. Their parents died when she was a little kid. Um, both her parents died within a year of each other, I believe. Uh, and she moved and they were so excited to go to America. And my, uh, cousin Baka Hans was a kid when all of this happened. And he remembers that they wrote letters back saying, do not move here. Like, well, they were covert about it because they didn't want to scare the older siblings and make them worry, but they were trying to say like, don't move here. This is not like, not what we thought. Oof. 
Oof, yeah, that's intense. Um, yeah, my uh, great great grandparents who moved over here, um, you know, they were trying to escape poverty, um, you know, and and literal starvation. And the same is true for a lot of Irish Americans as well. Um, you know, like attempting to escape starvation. Yeah, I have some Irish ancestry as well, and that's very true in that that side of my ancestral thread that they were coming just for most most people who weren't forced to go to America were coming for opportunity that they they thought it was going to be a better option. And I think probably still a lot of people who are um, immigrants in America are over here because of opportunity because that's what we advertise right whether or not that's true it's it's what americans advertise um so this has been an amazing conversation my biggest parting thought um is that i just want to speak out to young practitioners like baby witches and people like that and just share that um whatever you're doing even if you need to update your practice even if you're um, trying, you find out something is not, you know, maybe you find out something's appropriate. If you find out this, that the fact that you're doing it is great. Um, that I, I really wish uh, baby witches and new practitioners trusted themselves more because ultimately no one can describe your experience better than you can. Um, to listen to the people that you're asking advice from, but ultimately have faith in your own skills because I think you're probably doing really great. Well, thank you so much, Minta. And how can people kind of follow your work? Leadfirewellness.com has all the links to all the different projects that we do. Um, we all, I also offer all of my spell work services on there as well as um, custom spell kits for uh pretty much any type of practitioner, but specifically with baby witches in mind, people who want to be able to do uh, really specific spell work, but need an extra hand at that. And those spell kits are gorgeous, by the way. They're like incredible. I'm not a baby witch, but I'm definitely, I've definitely considered like ordering a custom spell kit because you have that like I don't know. You have a very specific like magpie sort of, or like troll, I should say, like I. It's definitely elf core. I, if, <laughs> I'm, if I'm anything, I'm part elf. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> uh, so it's definitely um, my little elven touch, but uh, yeah, they're, they're definitely not supposed to be uh, elementary, but they are supposed to be uh, described well enough that it, anyone of any level can at least try. Yeah, I highly recommend. And you also have like a lot of lovely pieces of jewelry and, um, you know, just like other wonderful things for anyone. Um, so yeah, so check out needfirewellness.com. And then you also, I think it's like needfirewellness on Instagram as well, or like what, what are the socials? Um, all the socials are all the same. As far as I know, no one else is using this name. So if you (laughs) need fire wellness, you should be able to find us on all the different platforms. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for hopping on the Heathen's Journey podcast, Minta. This has been fantastic and we will definitely have another conversation in the future. Love that. Thank you so much for having me. Aren't they lovely? 
Thank you so much for listening until the end. If you want to check out needfirewellness.com and order yourself some magical goodies, you can get 10% off when you use code HEATHENJOURNEYPODDEN. That's HEATHENJOURNEYPODDEN, P-O-D-D-E-N. This has been a long episode, so I'll leave you here. Thank you so much for listening. Don't forget to tune back in in a couple of weeks for a deep dive into Thurisaz. Take care and stay weird.